near in the middle of chapter 17 in the midst of the prayer of our great high priest. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John 17, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 13. Jesus is praying. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Thus far, the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we continue in our worship before you this morning, we rejoice that we come through the mediation of our high priest, this one whom you have set on high, who prayed for the church so long ago and even continues to make intercession for us. Lord, it is our confidence at this time, even as you have declared that he makes intercession for us as we gather before you to worship. Father, we pray that as we continue now in the worship of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would set before us the beauties and the excellencies of Christ, that you would refresh and renew us in the hope of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit who inspired John to write and record these words of our Redeemer, that you have preserved them even to this day, Lord. We pray that same Holy Spirit whom you have appointed to bless the foolishness of preaching, that men would not be exalted, but indeed our God would be exalted through the proclamation of the good news. Lord, bless, your, bless us with your spirit as we hear as well, that your word might find good soil within us. All for your praise and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thus far in Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus has prayed to the Father about himself, specifically uh, how he may glorify the Father by completing the will of the Father, uh, doing that which the Father has sent him to do. Jesus has prayed about giving eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. That's one of the reoccurring themes. We've just heard it now of those that the Father has given to him. That eternal life will shortly be purchased and secured on the cross. Jesus' cross, where Jesus will purchase salvation for the people whom the Father has given to him. He will shed his blood to wash away the sin and the guilt and the shame of the sin of his own. And he will die a death that his people deserve. He will die as their substitute. He will die in their place for the glory of God and for the liberation of all those whom the Father has given to him. Last week we heard Jesus tell the Father that he has been faithful. He has made the Father known to those whom the Father has given to him. And now they know the things that he had, that he had received them from the Father. All that which Jesus imparted to them, his teaching, his ministry, his preaching, all these things were from the Father. And the disciples have come to understand that this was the case. And as the scripture said, Jesus did this. He made the Father known to them by giving them the words which the Father gave to him. It is in this context and from this foundation that Jesus then moves to pray for the disciples, these 11 men who have remained with him, who will soon be sent out into the world. Jesus has prayed in this manner and with this structure of progression to establish that he, what he now asks for, that it is fully agreeable to the will of his Father. Children, what Jesus did would be like you going to your Father to ask for something from him. But before you did that, before you ask your Father for something, it would be like your children saying, Father, remember, I'm your son. I'm, I'm your daughter. You and Mommy are a 
the ones who, by God's grace, have brought into the world, and, and you have been raising me. You, you love me, and I love you. And then making your petition, asking your father for something specifically. You're establishing the relationship, and from that relationship, making your request. That's what we see Jesus doing here this morning as we move into the portion of Jesus' prayer where he asks God for certain things. He begins making petitions of the Father. Uh, these are, are not pleadings like we make as sinners coming to a holy God. These are the requests of the Son doing the will of the Father. And yet they are requests. They are petitions as our high priest Jesus interceding on the behalf of his church. What Jesus prays was first for those men who remained with him. But the prayer extends to and includes all those who come to Jesus by faith. We will hear that specific language later in this prayer as Jesus prays for those whom through the ministry of these 11 men who will be sent out into the world. You know, the 12th one added, uh, Matthias or Paul, uh, we can't settle that question, but this, these apostles that Christ commissions, Christ sends, will preach and the church will build. And Jesus prays for them. But even these petitions that uh, we see this morning in verses 9 through 13 extend beyond these 11 even to the church down through the ages. This morning, as we move into this portion of Jesus making these petitions, we want to see that Jesus in this prayer prays as our high priest, the high priest of the church, the king and the head of the church, what Jesus prays was first for those and then for us. And so this morning, from Jesus' prayer, we will learn what is important to Jesus and therefore what should be important to us. We will learn from what we hear Jesus praying, what, what he focused on, what was important to him. And this then should be important to us. We're going to use three main headings. First, we're going to note that Jesus only prays for his people. Quite remarkable. It's not the way the world views him. But Jesus only prays for his people. Then Jesus prays that his people will be kept. And then thirdly, the effect of Jesus' prayer. What, what is the outcome? What is the result? We begin then with that Jesus only prays for his people. We find this in verses 9 and 10. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Later he comments, they are the ones you've given me out of the world. This is what we are considering first. We begin by seeing that what is the focus of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays for them, the very ones that the Father has given to him. Once again, we encounter the doctrine of election. We saw this earlier in Jesus' prayer. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. And yet there are portions of the church that they stumble over this doctrine. They, they even want to reject this doctrine. And yet we see the king and the head of the church talking about that the father had a people that he gave to his son. We have this doctrine of election. It's according to the hidden counsel of God. He out of his own free will, according to his counsel, as God chose a people out of the sons of Adam to be the sons, his sons, his children. He gave them to Jesus to redeem. Jesus declared this truth back in verse 2 as well. As you have given him authority over all flesh, he's speaking about the son, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. God, the sovereign one over all, determines who shall be saved. This doctrine is clearly and plainly taught throughout the scripture. Our Westminster Confession of Faith captures what's taught in the breadth of scriptures. And in the third chapter of the Confession of Faith, it's on providence. And this doctrine of election comes up. In paragraph 6, we read, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. They are effectually called unto faith by Christ, by his Spirit, working in due season. We go on. They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ. Only the elect. Neither are any other effectually called or justified or adopted or sanctified and saved. But the elect 
only. It is God's purpose that is being fulfilled here. This is what Jesus prays about. He prays for those, the elect, the ones that the Father has given to him, the one whose names are written on his hand, the ones that before the foundation of the world the Father gave to him, that Jesus came into the world to redeem, to redeem out of sin, and to redeem unto God. And so Jesus prays for his people because it agrees with his Father's will. It's consistent with what his Father has ordained. He prays only for these whom the Father has given him. It was the Father's will that Jesus have them and no others. Jesus didn't come into the world on a mission of redemption, hoping that some, some people somewhere might just happen to follow him. For indeed, none would, as Paul writes, quoting from the Old Testament in Romans 3. He says, there are none who seek after God. Not even one. So if it was not for the sovereign acting of a holy God, none would be redeemed. Indeed, all would perish. But it was the Father's will, and he gave some to his Son. It was the Father's will that Jesus have them and no others. And Jesus delights as their high priest, as our high priest, to pray for us. He did then. He continues to do so now. Jesus prays for his people because of the love of the Father for them. It was the Father's love that looked upon the mass of humanity and appointed in Christ. And we need to understand that. It's, it's not a blind, it's always in Christ. Christ is always in view. And in Christ, he appointed a people for himself, a people for his son. And God so loved them that he gave his son, and he gave them to his son, that he would save them from the wrath to come. It is the wrath of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it is the wrath of God that was to come, and it's the Son who then comes in human flesh to redeem them. And so we see that Jesus doesn't pray for the whole world. He's very explicit. Verse 9 again, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Jesus' focus is upon his people. Who are those that Jesus does not pray for? Well, when Jesus says, I do not pray for the world, he's talking about all the other children of Adam. Now, before we go on to consider this, let's just remember, just because he's not praying for them does not mean that Jesus is not king and sovereign over all the world. All the world is under his dominion. We find that in Psalm 2, as Jesus has been faithful as this Messiah and the Redeemer, that God has set him on his throne and he has given him a rod of irons that he should rule over the nations. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so all men are under his dominion. And indeed, the, the fullness and the vastness of the expanse of creation is under King Jesus. But his focus, this is what's remarkable, brothers and sisters, his focus is on his people. His focus is on those whom the Father has given to him. And Jesus, even as he talks to the Father in prayer about that, he says, I do not pray for the world. What does Jesus mean when he says, I do not pray for the world? Well, these are all the other children of Adam not appointed by God for salvation. They're sinners. They all sinned in Adam and fell with him in that first transgression. Indeed, as we did. That's, that's the nature of all humanity that proceeds from Adam by ordinary generation. That is, all of those who come into the world because of a human father and a human mother, those two particularly, all these are sinners. Ordinary generation would exclude Jesus. He did not come and become human flesh by ordinary generation. He had no earthly father as far as his humanity is concerned. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit but again, turning to the Westminster Confession, chapter 3, verse, uh, paragraph 7, right on the heels of what we've already heard, rightly declares what the Scripture teaches, the rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy, as he is pleased, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures. What did he do of his own will? To pass by and to adorn, ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. I'm going to tell you about myself. Back in the late 80s, um, I'd grown up in, in largely Arminian churches, and this doctrine of predestination and an election was something that I did not grow up with. And as the Lord was working on me and bringing me along to fully understand the doctrines of grace, I stumbled over this idea of particular atonement, that Jesus died for a particular people. And a friend of mine who was, you know, 
discipling me, helping me bring me along. And we were talking to another friend. And he says, think about it this way. He says, imagine a piece of newspaper that's been doused with gasoline. And you're going to put a flame to it. It's all going to be destroyed. But you decide at the last minute, you know what, there's a cartoon there I like. And you just tear that off. You just take part of the paper and you tear it off and you set it aside. Let the gas evaporate. You want to keep that part. It's yours to do with. And then the rest is consumed. So that's like the mass of humanity. What do we all deserve? We deserve to be destroyed in the wrath of God's fire in all eternity forever and ever. And it pleased God to say, I preserve for myself. I appoint some of those for salvation. I set them apart in my son that they would not be destroyed, but indeed that they would have everlasting life. Here we see the mercy of God. God would have been just to destroy all the children of Adam. That would have been justice. It's one of the cavils of people when they hear about this doctrine of election. It's like, well, that's not just. No, you want justice? All humanity dies. That's justice. But God gave his wrath for those that he appointed for salvation to his son. And Jesus prays for these whom the Father has given to him. The rest have been passed over, passed by, as the confession puts it, and ordained them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious Justice, that is justice. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Romans 9. You might remember several years ago the passage, the potter in the clay. Paul writes, therefore, he has mercy, that is God, in whom he wills. In whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It has been God's focus in eternity past before times began to save a people from their sin. And in the fullness of time, God set forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, to deliver a people in bondage to sin. John records then the prayer of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is his focus? Jesus is praying for his people. That's the focus of our Redeemer. As he's walked amongst men, as he's carried out his ministry, that has been his focus. He is, he is honoring his Father, obeying his Father, doing the will of his Father. And what is the will of his Father? That he will redeem a particular people whom the Father has given to him. And here we find him praying to his Father for those whom the Father has given to him. Let's make some application of this before we move on. This electing grace of God is for the cause of comfort to believers. It's not by the will of man. If you're redeemed, it's not because of your will. It's not because you are wise or powerful. It is because of the will of God. Again, the next paragraph in the Westminster Confession, chapter 3. This doctrine, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation that's the calling of salvation be assured of their eternal election so shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise it's a reason for praise for reverence for admiration of God and of humility. You didn't do this. This is all of God. It's a cause for humility. Diligence, having been redeemed by God's grace, that we would be diligent and faithful and obedient. And it's also for abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. It is a comforting doctrine. I've heard or read a theologian, can't remember who or which or when, but this is like the family secret. Why are we in the family? Why were we adopted? Because of a sovereign God's predetermined counsel. That's why. He has done it. He has acted. Now we've heard here that the Father's focus is on his people. Jesus focuses on his people. And as his people, our focus must be in turn on the Father. This is some of what the confession was talking about. Humility, but abundance, consolation, a sincerity in our obedience to God. What was your focus this past week? I've got an iPhone. 
I've got an iPad too, and it seems like sometime on Sunday this pops up as a, a report of how I've used my phone for the past seven days. And it'll show the different apps or social media or emailing, different ways that the phone has been used. There's this report, and, and was it more than last week, less than last week? Perhaps some of you had that too. What if we received a report for the last week that would show how we spent our time every hour? What would that report say your focus was? What did you spend your time doing? What was it that was valuable to you? Where did you lay your priorities? Jesus warns us, But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in that day of judgment. Indeed, let us bless our God, who does not deal with us as our sins deserve. You see, Christ has a righteous record of obedience that stands in our place. We have a Redeemer whose righteous acts are credited to our account. And so the shame that we rightfully have for our sinfulness and our failure, Christ has paid for that, and his righteousness speaks on our behalf. But nonetheless, as a people redeemed by grace, we are called to obedience. We're called to faithfulness. We're going to deal with this more in, in, uh, later on in this prayer of Jesus. We'll be focusing on holiness, um, and we will find it uncomfortable. I will tell you that. I've already been doing some reading. We find it uncom- We need to be unsettled at our indifference and our laziness. But even now, just think about that. Here is Christ. What's his focus? He was all consumed with the will of the Father. The Father had given it to him to come into the world to save a people. And that meant going to the cross. That meant laying down his life to redeem those people in order to secure them unto God. And that was his focus. And when it came time to turn to go to Jerusalem and to that hour that was appointed for him, one of the Gospels writes that he set his face like flint. Children, flint is a hard rock. It does not bend. It is not shaped except by breaking. And that's what saying. Jesus was resolute. His focus was the will of the Father. But his focus was his love for us, that he loved us, and that he went willingly to the cross to redeem a people unto God. So let us make our focus on God in his glory. One final application. Electing grace should also serve as a truth that compels sinners to come to God. And you might say, oh, come on. And perhaps you're not in Christ and you hear this doctrine of grace. It's like, well, God's going to save me. He's going to save me. If he's not, he's not. So whatever, I'll just go along. It's a wicked response to think thusly. Indeed, It should compel sinners to come to Jesus. If you see that you are a sinner, and you see that God's wrath is righteous and his judgment would fall upon you, and then you see that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners, and you hear his call to come, come. If if the Spirit is working upon you to come to Christ, run to him, rush to him, uh, come with all your coming, get with all your getting to come to Christ, the only Savior of sinners, God will save you. Because he's appointed you for salvation, but you must come, even if the Spirit would draw you. We move on to our second point. Jesus prays that his people will be kept. This is verses 11 and 12. Jesus prays or intercedes for his own because everything that they have known, these 11 men who remain with him, everything they've known for the past three years is about to change. It's going to change Radically, It's going to change suddenly. He's, he's praying for them. Every morning they woke up and Jesus is with them or he's near at hand because we know from the gospel accounts he's often gone off into the night or the wee hours of the morning to pray. But they know he'll soon return from his communion with his father. We know from the gospel accounts their, their, their faith is weak because it's been little exercised. They've been walking by sight. Jesus is with them. They see him. He says, come on and let's go. They follow him. That's pretty easy to do, isn't it? But that's all going to change. Very soon they're going to have to walk by faith. They, they will see him no more. He's going to ascend in his body to the right hand of the Father. Now, he's not going to leave them alone. He gives them the Spirit. He's already told them that. He's going to tell them that some more before he goes. But he's going to leave them. And as Jesus leaves them... Concerning his human body, 
it's going to be, it's going to have a fact. It's, it's as though when he's with them, like with them, they're like the mother hen who spreads her wings over her little chicks to protect them and to shade them and to keep them. Jesus has done that. He has spread his protection over them from the religious leaders. He's, he's taken the brunt of the assaults. They, they've come to Jesus talking about his disciples. Why do your disciples not do that? Jesus has shielded them and protected them. We're going to see just a little later on in this night when the band comes to arrest him, Jesus will say, will you let them go? He lets his men escape. It was his will that they not be arrested as well. Jesus is going to leave, and that very visible manifestation of protection will end. The protection will not end, but his visible presence will. And so Jesus asks the Father, what does he pray here? He says, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Now, we dealt with the matter of God's name. His name is all that he is. It represents him. When you consider the name of God, you're considering God. If you would consider God, you consider him through his names. We understand him through his names. There's a host of names used, particularly in the Old Testament, to speak of who God is and what he's like, what his character is like, what is the manner of his dealing with the sons of men. Jesus has made that known to his people. That's who Jesus has been making known particularly to these men. Now, to walk by faith in the world, these men must learn to rely upon God himself. Though they cannot see God, God is. We, we know this. By God's grace, we understand God is. We don't see him. And yet we see the evidence of him. We see the manifestation of him. We hear of him especially from the word. The Lord Jesus Christ reveals him to us, and we learn to rely upon him. We rest in him, and we revere his name. All his names, because they speak of who he is. And Jesus is praying that the Father would keep them through the name, through his name. Now, when Peter faltered and denied knowing Jesus, the Father kept Peter from going the way of Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied knowing Jesus with strong oaths. He went out and wept bitterly, but Judas went out and hung himself, and Jesus did not. We know later on, that, or earlier, that Jesus said he prayed for Peter, and he told him he was going to deny him. He prayed for him, and who kept him? Jesus is arrested, and physically he's, he's somewhere else, but the Father, who has always kept all things, the Father is keeping Peter. We see a specific fulfillment of Jesus' prayer here that the Father would keep them in the world, that the Father would watch over them, and so even as they were going to scatter that night, the Father keeps them. It's as though the Father's wings are extended to cover these eleven and to keep them from fleeing to the ends of the earth, or worse, Jesus asks the Father to keep and to guard and to protect them. Because these are the ones that Jesus has appointed after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who will go into the world to proclaim Christ. And you see that power and evidence of God's protection over them as they stand before powerful men and bear witness to the power of God and to salvation. They're unashamed of the gospel. They, they rejoice even to suffer for the sake of Christ. How is that going to be? How are these men so radically different? Jesus has prayed for them. The Father is protecting them. The Father has filled them with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus asked. John Calvin notes that it is not a small thing. Yes, it's a great comfort for us to know that the Son of God prayed in earnest for the salvation of his people. These men in particular, and at that particular time, as Jesus would depart with his bodily presence. Well, what can we learn from this? That as we walk out our days... As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, our life under the sun, as we encounter many difficulties in the world, Jesus keeps his eye on us. He is still making intercession for us to the Father. Our high priest has not ceased to make intercession for us. He still prays that the Father would keep us, guard us, protect us as we live in the world. Notice in verse 11 that Jesus addresses God as Holy Father. Elsewhere, Jesus tells us to call no other father. It's in this sense as God and Father. And here Jesus addresses him. This is for our encouragement, particularly and immediately for the encouragement of those, those 11 men that remained with him, those men who, whose ears were hearing him pray 
He says, Holy Father, for their benefit. For three years, God gave them to Jesus to keep. And now Jesus is leaving, and Jesus gives them back to the Holy Father, who is altogether lovely and righteous and just in all his dealings, one who is pure and righteous. He gives them to this Holy Father. And when Jesus ascended in the flesh to the right hand of the Father, the disciples suffered no loss. Now, it would have seemed to them initially, you know, he's gone from them. They, they see him go up, and, and then they go back to the, the Galilee where they've gathered. They go back alone. Or actually, it's Jerusalem. They go back alone without him. But Jesus has given them to the Holy Father. My friends, we are given to the Holy Father. It was the Holy Father's will that we would be saved. The Father sent his Son into the world to save us. And Jesus has redeemed us and brought us to the Holy Father that God would keep us. And this is what Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, hallowed, that is holy, is your name. And so it is. Jesus has prayed. And God the Father has received his people. And he protects them. It is this sovereign God who rules and reigns over all the sons of Adam and over all the affairs of men who keeps us. He keeps us as we go about our days. So that nothing that happens in our life is an accident. Nothing is unexpected. God has ordained it and appointed it for his glory and for our good. Sometimes for our chastisement. But God is at work in all that comes our way. In verse 11, Jesus also says, Keep through your name, a little later, that they may be one as we are one. This is one of the petitions. He's, he's petitioned the Father to keep, to protect these men, the, the beginnings of the church. But he also petitions the Father that by being kept in his name, that they will be one. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given to me, that they may be one and he qualifies that as we are one. We don't fully grasp that because we don't fully grasp uh, the unity and oneness of the Trinity. It is most remarkable. And yet Jesus is praying that the Father would make us one as his people. This is the result of the Father's care, his keeping them. And it gives us a sense of what the keeping is. It's not just God sitting in heaven keeping an eye on his children. It's like, well, let's watch over that and we'll handle that. No, it's more than God is at work in us. This guarding and keeping that the Father is doing at the request of the Son is that he would work in us by his word and spirit to bring us to be more conformed to the image of his Son, that we would be that this keeping would be in, uh, according to his purpose or the design of our faith. Again, this is going to tie in more when we talk about holiness uh, in the next couple of weeks. But you see, God didn't just save us to keep us from his wrath. He didn't save us just to keep us out of hell. He didn't just save us to bring us to heaven. He saved us so that we'd be holy so that we can commune in fellowship with him. Now, when we are redeemed, that's justified by the act of God declaring us righteous in his sight because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, in a sense, holy. We're holy in the Lord. We have a righteousness that's not our own. But right on the heels of that, we're called to holiness, to sanctification. Multiple times in the scriptures, we read, Be holy, God speaking, be holy as I am holy. For without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. If we are to enter into heaven, we must also be holy in our conduct. Be careful that I don't run ahead to where we're going in the next week as we will delve, into, dwell, not delve more into this holiness. But this, this is what Jesus is getting at, that they will be one. Why is it there's so much friction between us here on the earth? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been redeemed by one blood. Uh, we have one faith, one hope, one baptism. We're, we have this common religion, this common bond, and yet we still get crosswise with each other because there's still sin that remains within us. There's still parts of our flesh that have been not been subdued, that we've not crucified. And therefore, we, even in our unity as a body of Christ, there's friction when Jesus says, one as we are one, there's no friction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
they dwell in perfect harmony. Now, to be sure, this won't be fully realized until we are glorified and make our way to heaven when Jesus comes again. But the God the Father is working to that end. He is working that we should be one. Paul applies the gospel in this way in Ephesians 4, having established in the first part of Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, that we are united to Christ and we receive a host of benefits in Christ. He calls the church then, what does he say? I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is this not how God has dealt with us? Long-suffering, bearing with us in love. This is what God is at work in us to do. This is We've been redeemed so that this work can begin. You, you can't work with dead bodies. We must be made alive unto God and salvation. We need to be right with God, and then God works in us. And this is what Jesus has in view. And as I said, he's going to be more specific. But he says, make them one. Make them unified. Make them whole. May the gospel come in such power and demonstration of the power in them that they live as unto God and for his glory. It is true that fractures destroy people. Fractures destroy families. Fractures destroy nations, but Jesus unites. He unites his people to be one in him. So Jesus prayed to the Father right before going to the cross that the Father would make us, the church, one, that we would know the oneness, the unity, the harmony that the Trinity knows. And so it is that the Father works in us. How does he do that? Through the preaching of the word. So we hear the word of God, we hear the truth that God has revealed, and whatever we've thought about any particular doctrine or th whatever, uh, it's, those false ideas are torn down and they're replaced with the truth so that we have a, a proper understanding of God and ourselves, the sin and the world, that we would become more and more conformed to the image of our God. Our unity comes with the purity of truth. It's one of the things that troubles me in our denomination. Uh, we're not united right now in the PCA. There's, there's friction. There's a lack of harmony and common and in purpose. And yet, what does it mean? People say, oh, we, we need peace and purity. That's the way it's put. Peace and purity. That's not how Scripture puts it. It says purity and peace. You cannot have peace without purity. We cannot be one without purity of truth and doctrine. And that's what God is doing as the gospel is proclaimed, that we would lay aside our own petty ideas, that we would submit and yield to our God. This is what Paul goes on to talk about in Ephesians 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See the unity and the truth of our God. It is through this unity and truth that we arrive at peace. Verse 12 says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus has accomplished some of this already. This is already underway, particularly with these men. This Jesus is accomplishing it with his disciples while he was with them in the world. He kept them united, and he presents them to the Father, that the Father would keep them. Jesus was God's servant who came to save his people and to establish and then to build the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And that's what he's praying about, that the church will be built to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus says, I kept them in your name. He's made it clear that as Jehovah's servant thinking of Isaiah here, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, that he has done this. Jesus made it clear that he only did what he saw his father doing. He made it clear that he only spoke what he heard his father saying. He was full of the Holy Spirit and only and always served the Father. All that Jesus did was under the protection of the Father. That's why Jesus says, I've kept them in your name. God is over all, doing all. 
think of this protection that God gave to his son. There were those, as we've seen in John's gospel, who were constantly nipping at his heels, those who wanted to destroy him. Many times they, they wanted to seize Jesus, and, and he just it almost seems like he just disappeared. He just walked away in their midst. There, there's these reports of that, and it's mysterious. And we don't know exactly how it was that you know they were determined, they were they were hot, and they were going to kill him. They were going to cast him off the ledge in Nazareth, his hometown. And yet, he just walked down through their midst. Why is that? The father was keeping the son, because the father had pointed that the son would die outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross. And so Jesus has done this. It's all for the glory of the Father. He was given these people by the Father, and he kept them. But then Jesus says, except. None is lost except the son of perdition. That's Judas. It's very obvious. What does perdition mean? It's devoted to destruction. You remember the Old Testament when they were in, uh, conquering the land? God says, destroy them. Everything that lives moves. When they went to Jericho, is you burn, destroy everything. You were to take nothing from that city. It was a wicked city devoted to destruction. All were to perish except for Rahab who received the spies. Why? Because she had faith in the God of Israel. But that's what this word perdition means. Judas, it was written by God, the Holy Spirit, in the word of God, that he would betray the Son. Find it in Psalms that he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. We hear echoes of Genesis 3.15. Judas did what he did because it was the will of God. And so here we find one who is not elect. One of the twelve is not appointed for salvation. And yet he walked with Jesus. His walk was so like the others that none of them suspected. When Jesus said in the upper room that one of them was going to betray him, they didn't go, oh yeah, that's Judas, we know that. They had no idea. It was not obvious that he was not of the elect. Yet Judas's ruin was his own. It was his own doing, his own choosing. He chose, and the reality of it came suddenly, although God had known it and had decreed it before the foundation of the earth. No one can lay a charge against God because of what Judas did. It's not because God decreed it. It's not because it was foretold. Judas acted of his own free will and consistent with his own sin nature, and so that all that he did was done freely from a heart of sin. It's pretty sober to think that we are capable of such. Events do not come to pass because prophecy foretold them. Jesus says, the son of perdition, bless, um, none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The scriptures aren't constraining and governing Judas. The scriptures God foretold that would happen and this is the fulfillment, the way that Judas acted of his own free will. So as I said a moment ago, events do not come to pass because prophecy foretold them. Those events would have happened if no prophet had spoke of them beforehand. God gives prophecy to forewarned men and nations. He prophesies of things to forewarn us, the chief of which is that Jesus is coming again, and he will come with majesty and power and might to judge the living and the dead. He is told that, that we should be forewarned. He's also given prophecy for the comfort of his people. We hear of the coming Christ, and that's comforting, that we would know that this mess that is on the earth will not continue forever. The injustices that, that we experience at the hand of the wicked will not continue forever. We may go to our grave with, with uh, injustices against us that were never set right on this earth, but King Jesus is coming, and as the judge of all, he will set them right. There's comfort for God's people when dark events take place. People of God understand that, even in our day. We don't have to figure out what's happening, where things are going. Jesus is on the throne. And he's told us how it's all going to turn out. We read it in portions of Scripture. He's going to come suddenly, like a thief in the night, and with a shout, the dead in Christ will be brought forth from their graves. You know, the trump of the archangel of God, we who are yet alive will be caught up in the air to meet them, and so shall we be forever with the Lord. That's what's coming. That's comfort. Whatever's happening in this world, we need not overly concern ourselves with it. We entrust ourselves to God. Now, no doubt the disciples were alarmed. 
the Judas, the pronouncement about Peter, that the hour is coming. There's, there's so much that's going on that they do not comprehend. And no doubt they were alarmed to hear Jesus pray as he did. No doubt they were going to be more alarmed in a few hours when Judas comes leading a band of armed men to arrest their rabbi. But in this day, and we can be comforted, God foreknew it, God foretold it, God decreed it, God was at work. What Judas did was foreordained. And so as they see that unfolding, they can have an understanding. Even as Jesus reminds them, as they hear him praying, things are not out of control. This is God's doing. This is God's plan. This is God's will. And though we do not have prophecy about our day as far as the the details of the day, what the nations are doing, God's decreed it. He's at work in it. And so, people of God, be comforted to know that. So as we move forward, let us consider that Jesus prays that we would be one as the Father and He are one. What's the application? Let us study the Word of God. And let us, by the word and spirit, seek to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would enjoy that unity, that peace, and that blessing that comes to us from above. Jesus died to make us one people, worshiping one God and Father, that we would embrace one faith, one hope, and that we would have one focus to pursue the things of God. Well, thirdly, we consider the effects of Jesus' prayer for his people. Verse 13 But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Jesus is praying just prior to his suffering as our Savior. He is about to go to the cross and die in the place of his people, to go and pay the debt that they owe. And then he will return to the Father. Jesus is praying about this immediate departure. He spoke of this in John chapter 16, verse 16. Yet a little while, and you will not see me. That departure is about to happen. And then you'll see me a little while, and then he says, I will go to the Father. And so in verse 13, Jesus says, but now I come to you. He is looking to that as he prays that he will go to the Father. According to his flesh, he will ascend to the heavens. These men were very anxious about their present circumstances, as we can well imagine. And Jesus is praying in their presence. And he does so for a reason, that they may know his joy that it may be fulfilled in them. They, like we are so often, we're anxious about many things. We, we look for truth to set our anchor into. We look for a rock on which we can stand, something solid under our feet. And Jesus seeks to remove their doubts and as well as ours. As John Calvin captures it well, quoting, Christ shows that the reason why he is, was so earnest in praying for his disciples, not that he was anxious about the future, their future condition, but rather to provide a remedy for their anxiety. This is related to the fact that you know, things have been foretold, particularly the things that are happening. And Jesus says, therefore, I speak while I'm in the world. He means while he's yet here on the earth. He spoke so that they would hear him. Jesus wants them to hear this prayer. He wants them to be comforted by the, the words they hear him praying. And it's because of his love for them that he prays in their hearing. And the Father placed the eternal salvation of the elect in and on the very life of Jesus. And Jesus has prayed, placing these men in the hands of the Father who gave them to him. There's no more secure place to be found in all the vastness of creation under the Father's wings, in the Father's hands, in Jesus' hands. So the effects of Jesus' prayer is that his people, the elect in all the ages, those present and hearing him, and those of us even now hearing his words now, The effect of Jesus' prayer is that we may all have his joy fulfilled in us. Jesus' joy in you because you have the security, that security. And beloved child of God, you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls it his joy because he's the source of the joy. We do not have this joy in ourselves It doesn't originate with us. It comes from Jesus by his word and spirit, by the revelation of the will of God. So what do we understand here? Jesus is the author of this joy. Jesus is the perfecter of this joy. Jesus is the cause of this joy. And Jesus is also the seal of this joy. Left to ourselves, what do we have? Fear, 
alarm, confusion, ill at ease, my friends. But in Jesus there is peace and joy without measure, now and forevermore. Jesus' design is for us to know and experience his joy. How would we know this joy? By being in Christ and in resting in him and his rule and reign that he rules over us. As we conclude, I declared in the introduction that we would learn from Jesus' prayer what is important to Jesus and therefore should be important to us. We've seen that the people that Jesus received from the Father, these are his focus, and all his delight is in them. For this reason, Jesus prays for them. He always lives to make intercession for them, as is written in Hebrews. And so what should we learn? Our focus should be on God the Father, as we said earlier, and the Son, and on the church. Yes, we're going to live in the world. We have responsibilities in the world. We have jobs and all those things go on. But our focus and our affection and our desire and our delight should be on God our Father and upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Christ is the head. That should be our focus. Secondly, we have seen that Jesus asked the Father to keep his people safe in the world. That is to guide and guard and perfect them while they live in the world. A world that we are well acquainted with is filled with temptations. Jesus, his desire is that we, his people, should arrive safely in heaven, a holy people, sanctified by the word and spirit, ready to dwell in a holy place. So let that be our focus. Let that be what consumes us, that we should grow in holiness, that it should be our desire to be conformed more to the image of the Son, that we should encourage, encourage one another, that we should spur one another on in growth and holiness. And thirdly, we've seen that Jesus prays that his people would be filled with his joy. Let that be our pursuit. You see the beauty of our Savior in all these things? There's none other like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is chief among ten thousands. As he prays to the Father, these things surely have come to pass. And Jesus right now continues to intercede for you, for us. Let us find joy in knowing that. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord our God, we pray asking that as we see, as we are able to look into the heart of our Redeemer, based upon the things that he prays for, Lord, that these would be our priorities, uh, that they would be what we are focused on, that the things of this world will grow uh, dim as we focus on him, the things that endure, the things that are eternal. Lord, help us, for we are beset on many sides by many distractions and temptations. But, Lord, as you have heard the prayer of our Redeemer for us, we pray that you would answer it even in our day, as you did in the first century. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together, and we're going to sing number 305, Arise, My Soul, Arise.